Chapter twenty nine, part one of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by K. Hand. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two by Moncure Conway. Chapter twenty nine, part one. Meeting with Robert Browning was like a fine morning his whole handsome countenance smiled not his mouth merely or even chiefly and his greeting was to tell something pleasant for some years i lived in delamere terrace near his house in warwick crescent and sometimes joined his walks he had been friendly with me from the first having read an article i had written in america about his poetry the large three-volume edition of his poems had just appeared when i arrived eighteen sixty three and i wrote two extended reviews of it one in the westminster review the other in the englishwoman's journal he recognized the papers as indicating loving study of his writings i was able also to do him some practical service finding that he had no adequate arrangement in america for the publication of his works or those of mrs browning i offered to undertake that matter for him and succeeded he showed his gratitude by presenting me with a copy of the original edition of his first poem pauline which many years later i found was one of the five or six copies discoverable browning was much interested in america mrs conway who had been requested to act in london in the interest of the concord bazaar for the benefit of the freedmen hinted to browning that an autograph of his would be valuable thereupon he took out a large bundle of papers manuscripts of his early poems sordello was in a separate wrapper he removed the parchment wrapper of the poems and showed us the sentences greek latin english with which it was covered this parchment wrapper was duly forwarded to mrs horace mann but who was the purchaser i know not it would be a relic of interest to the browning society in london before sending it to america i made a copy which i conclude to insert here the figures affixed to each quotation refer to the translations that will follow a la pan tomaton que penita one and a key salmon osa volometha two saturday may twenty seven eighteen thirty seven tuesday june eighteen eighteen thirty seven july thirty eighteen thirty seven august seventh january fifth eighteen thirty eight march sixth twenty seven february twenty third eighteen forty theta delta epsilon alpha exore mactasia conitate emet aftas gramasi dignimine zeta ypsilon theta iota lugosi vrotis three i vois philetheme tacantenes alie son de andres ego de den onye melon esome four thethnicos zo thengomenos somati five o ana upotesio lisome arhomenos uthe apapovomenos al ei protonse ke estonte en te me sisin aiso simi de clisi ke estalathithu six tu fulminibus frange trisulcis seven panthi thathanatun afinis nos anthropisin eight hutus anthekemi metanthropon theos nine ego quid ater adri novicinus et quid albus peci iapix ten 
then i said i will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name but his word was in mine heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones and i was weary with forbearing and i could not stay here in the greek first corinthians fourteen eight nine os paraxini herontes ethin pu atu ikethala tevontes ethin limena utu igraphontes vivliu telus to-morrow and to-morrow and to-morrow on browning's parchment the sentences were irregular some of them curving about to find room one passage was all in capitals and run together like a single long word the accents were hardly decipherable no translations nor references to sources were given the difficulties of presenting the document in any useful way were so great that i had nearly concluded not to attempt it but a friend submitted it to a scholar not to be baffled by difficulties namely to professor w k prentice of princeton this ingenuous and learned gentleman sent light through the whole thing as my reader will find by bringing together the figures i have above appended to browning's lines with those that number professor prentice's notes here subjoined one this is translated by wharton sappho ode two seventeen but i must dare all since one so poor and this is probably what the line meant to browning but it is quite uncertain whether these are the words of sappho herself or of longinus who quotes the ode or partly of one and partly of the other consequently it is uncertain what the words really mean and they are omitted from most editions of sappho longinus on the sublime chapter ten is the only source for this ode two we conquered as we wished three six hours are quite enough for toil those thereafter expressed in writing say live to mortals anthologia palatina ten forty three anonymous four rejoice thou in thy youth dear heart soon there will be others but i dying shall be black earth theogenes eight hundred seventy seven f five for now the course from out the sea hath called me home dead yet speaking with a living tongue theogenes twelve thirty but this distich was written originally as Athenaeus, ten four hundred twenty seven b says of a conch shell which was used as a horn to call the poet home perhaps to his dinner six o lord thou son of leto child of zeus thee never will i forget beginning nor when i make an end but even thee first last and midmost will i sing then hear me thou and grant me good theogenes one through four seven shatter thou with three cleft thunderbolts eight but the thought of the immortals is altogether secret unto men solon frag seventeen nine and thus would i appear a god among men ten i know what hadria's gulf is when it darkens and what mischief bright eopics doth make horace charon twenty seven eighteen through twenty eleven as travellers rejoice to see how far have they come and mariners to see port so scribes to see the end of the book in eighteen sixty three and for a number of years thereafter robert browning was by no means the famous man he afterwards became complaints of obscurity in his writings were still heard among literary men tennyson to whom browning introduced me told me he thought his poems powerful but too rough anthony freud had a similar feeling browning had then more admirers in boston than in london william henry channing and i had an enthusiasm then shared only by dante rossetti 
chanting told me that the obscurity of sordello lay in the fact that in the original edition there was no punctuation at all he had taken his pencil and punctuated the book and it was comprehensible enough a browning club was suggested in my article eighteen sixty four in the englishwoman's journal when dramatis personae appeared the first review of it was written by myself from the proofs browning gave me for the morning star i found fault with the closing verse of gold hair for its apparent sanction of a dogma human depravity and he thought i had missed his meaning a review which i thought grossly unjust appeared in one of the quarterlies and i wondered who could have written it a man who sometimes invites me to dinner said browning carlyle objected to all rhymed and measured poetry but he must have made some reservation in favor of browning the men did not meet often but were always cordial i never heard browning speak of carlyle but with homage except on the appearance of his shooting niagara one evening when i was with the carlyles the talk fell on the brownings and the same night i wrote down my recollections carlyle i remember browning as a fine young man living in the neighborhood of croydon i liked him better than any young man about here he had simple speech and manners and ideas of his own a good talk i recall with him when i walked with him to the top of a hill which had a fine prospect when he published paracelus i did not make much of it it seemed to me to have something sensational as they say about it but that and his other works proved a strong man miss barrett sent me some of her first verses in manuscript i wrote back that i thought she could do better than write verses i saw little usefulness in them she wrote me then saying what else can i do here i am held hopelessly on a sofa by spinal disease i wrote taking back all i had said her father was a doctor late from india harsh and impracticable his lightest utterances must stand out hard as the laws of the medes and persians he saw her a moment every day as a physician then she was left alone then she read some compliments of browning's to her poetry mrs carlyle interposing oh no mr browning never wrote a word about her carlyle ah well you shall tell it all revised and corrected when i get through then she wrote something about him comparing him to a nectarine mrs carlyle oh mr ballantine a pomegranate m d c and from browning some pomegranate which cut deep down the middle shows a heart within blood tinctured of a veined humanity carlyle i stand corrected well browning becomes interested in that and other poems and resolves to find her out he has no clue to her except an acquaintance with her wealthy uncle john kenyon he writes to john kenyon asking for an introduction how was it then madam mrs carlyle mr kenyon was absent as soon as he returned he wrote a note to mr browning saying that his niece was a confirmed invalid never saw any one nor left her couch and that an introduction was impossible carlyle ah yes meanwhile browning hearing nothing from kenyon determined not to stop on ceremony and went to dr barrett's house the servant man had been taking too much beer thought browning a doctor and admitted him he went into the study where miss elizabeth was reclining they had a conversation liked each other and she made arrangements for him to call again he did so and the spinal disease passed away the spellbound princess was reached by her knight took up her bed and walked one day went all the way to marleybone church where they were married then they could not face the angry father and went to italy kenyon supplied the money and when he died left them more she was never suffered by her father to see him again not even when he was dying she caught sight of him through an open door now madam you may give the history in chronological order upon which miss carlyle dressed up a few points in his narrative in our talk mrs carlyle said she had tried to read sordello but could not tell whether sordello was a book a city or a man 
the house of the brownings in warwick crescent was of rather dark interior and the mixture of old italian tapestries and furniture with modern things was not attractive the family consisted of robert browning his father his sister miss browning and his son barrett whom they called pinna this youth petted a white owl which indeed had a high place in the affections of the whole family old mr browning was extremely interesting dante rossetti contended that there was something semitic in robert browning's countenance and although there was less suggestion of that origin in his father's looks plausibility was lent to the supposition by the fact that he had been a clerk of the rothschild and also by his hebrew learning the original name browning he told me had been de bruni i was told by an old friend of the elder browning that he was a good deal of a humorist he was clever in drawing pleasant sketches and caricatures of his friends and writing amusing verses beneath them i found his conversation particularly instructive in folklore the old gentleman's brain was a storehouse of literary and philosophical antiquities he seemed to have known paracelsius faustus and even talmudic personages personally he was modest with his learning a perfect gentleman miss browning was in every way attractive and with a wit and tact that appeared more french than english browning was a cautious believer in clairvoyance there was a famous medium in london mrs marshall whose performances puzzled me browning attributed them to clairvoyance he had no faith in the theory of spirits and a dislike of spiritualists in general of hume in particular hume i had met at the house of mr and mrs spencer hall where he recited a comic piece in verse and could appreciate the portraiture of mr sludge the medium after browning had enraged the spiritualist by that poem i mentioned to him in a note a story which had been put into circulation in america and which i wished to stigmatize in one of my letters to the cincinnati commercial it was that at some seance in italy where hume was present the spirits had placed a wreath on the head of his wife instead of on himself which made him jealous and angry he wrote me what you call the ridiculous story of hume's spirit passing me by to crown my wife and so gaining him my enmity was told by hume in a spiritualistic journal and i remember that the article containing the story invited me to say what i pleased in reply had i condescended to reply it would have been simply to the effect that i could desire no better evidence of hume's nature and practices than this lie which no doubt seemed to him exactly the thing to believe browning said to mrs conway that when people talked about his wife he had a sort of jealousy of her being spoken of by persons who knew little or nothing of the kind of woman she was one day when i was in his library browning took down his wife's bible hebrew greek and english and pointed to her notes on the wide margins which were numerous and critical including a number of more exact renderings what is that for learning he said when queen victoria desired to meet carlyle and the dean and lady augusta stanley arranged the matter march fourth eighteen sixty nine robert browning sir charles and lady lyell and mr and mrs grote were also invited in a letter to his sister too intimate to be copied here in full carlyle remarks with some humor that the queen said to browning are you writing anything browning had just been publishing the longest poem ever written the poet told me by the way that after the publication of the ring and the book he met carlyle and told him that if he had now reached the public it was by telling his story over ten times it was like bawling into the ear of a deaf man after that introduction to the queen browning was courted by the aristocracy he was above all an artist and knew well the philosophy of emerson's quatrain quit the hut frequent the palace reck not what the people say for still where'er the trees grow biggest huntsmen find the easiest way but i always felt that his serious friendships since those of his youth had mainly been with americans he spoke with much feeling of margaret fuller 
from her plague-stricken ship poor margaret wrote my wife a letter after a long time it reached us but so blurred that we could make out very little the paper so foul that we burnt it he loved to talk of the hawthorns who had lived near him in florence and of the motleys and the stories americans with good introduction were received with open arms he came in one day and found my wife sitting with his sister and said to her with a glow of satisfaction that he had just blackballed an editor who had tried to stir ill-feeling between america and england he enjoyed some of our american writers admired our women and liked our sparkling catawba to which i had the pleasure of introducing him in the days when old longworth made wine fit for any poet End of chapter twenty nine part one